Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Over the past decade or so, Christians have been paying more and more attention to controversy surrounding religious freedom. And yet, many of us may feel unequipped to answer even basic questions such as, why does religious freedom matter? Or, how significant are our challenges? Luke Goodrich is here to talk with us today about his recently published book, Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty, which aims to give believers tools to face these kinds of questions. Luke is vice president and senior counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, where he has won multiple Supreme Court victories for clients like the Little Sisters of the Poor and Hobby Lobby. He also teaches a course in constitutional law at the University of Utah Law School, He lives in Utah, where he enjoys exploring the outdoors with his wife and children and serving in their local church. Luke, thank you so much for taking the time to come and join us. Thanks so much for having me. So first of all, who is the book for? Who are you writing for? And what prompted you to write it in the first place? Yeah, so the book is for all Americans, but especially people of faith. And what prompted me to write it was really a gathering of Christian leaders back in 2014, when the Supreme Court was getting ready to legalize same-sex marriage. And these Christian leaders came together. These were heads of denominations, heads of religious colleges and universities, and large social service organizations to talk about what was coming next after the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. And in that room, two things stood out to me. One was just the level of fear. There were so many people who were deeply afraid of what was coming. And then second was the lack of knowledge, just not knowing what the real risks were or how to respond. And I had been uh, litigating these issues at the Beckett Fund for close to a decade at that time, and I just felt like, hey, maybe I have something here to add. And it, so I wrote this book to help ordinary Christians, you know, whether you're a Christian leader or you're a person in the pew or person on the street, just understand why religious freedom matters how it's threatened, and how to respond joyfully and confidently in light of the gospel. So, Luke, that reminds me of, I was actually reading the Washington Post, which I don't try to avoid sometimes, but no, but they have a, um, a common column that's like myths and facts, something like that. And one mm-hmm. of them, and it was about the Constitution. And one of them was, the Constitution says there's a separation between the church and state, right? And this is one of those things that people always bring up, right? Well, no, separation of church and state, right? But actually, the the professor who was writing said that that phrase wasn't, it's not actually in the Constitution, or that that phrase wasn't used until like the 1850s, something like that. So in relation to religious liberty, I mean, this is one of those things that, um, could you respond to like people who would say, well, separation, complete separation of church and state? Yeah, that that's a, a common phrase thrown around. It's not in the Constitution. Uh, it's also not a inherently bad phrase. It, it really depends on what you mean by separation of church and state. Often it's invoked to uh, try to eradicate every vestige of religion from the public square, in which case it's harmful because religion is a natural part of human culture and, and it shouldn't be eradicated from the public square. Uh, but rightly understood, separation of church and state is actually a good thing. Uh, we don't want the, the state trying to control the church or even the church trying to control the state. Uh, some measure of separation is actually healthy, and I've, I try to go into that in more detail and free to believe. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the fear that so many um, people express. 
And I think that's pretty common, especially in some of our circles, um, this sense that everything's going wrong. We may need to hide in a bunker or, or whatever, you know, like a kind of bunker mentality can set in. Then sometimes we'll get responses from people who kind of question our work being like, why do you even, you're making such a big deal about this. It's not even that big of a deal. It's so much worse in places like China, um, Nigeria, you know, you're making a big deal out of nothing. Um, how do you, you, you respond, deal with this question in the book? Can you talk a little bit about kind of how neither of those ways of putting it are quite right? Yeah, you do. I, you do see people on very opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to religious freedom. Some who are claiming we're on the road to being communist China and things are horrible and we're about to lose everything. And then others who say, you have a persecution complex, get over it. There's not really a problem here. And I think the, the common thread, the, the common error that I see in, in both ends of the spectrum is really thinking about religious freedom first and foremost as a legal or a political issue, a political tool, uh, either a tool to protect ourselves and our rights and protect Christianity, uh, or they dismiss it as a, a solely a culture war conservative tool that we really shouldn't care that much about. Uh, but the problem is religious freedom is not first and foremost a political or legal issue. It's a theological and a biblical issue. And so part of why I wrote Free to Believe is to to urge Christians to start thinking about this first theologically and understand where it comes from uh, in terms of our faith and the church's teaching, uh, and then address the legal and political issues. And, you know, it's not just a political issue to protect ourselves or, or to be dismissed. Rather, it's a basic issue of biblical justice rooted in the nature of God and the nature of man. And once we understand religious freedom that way, we're in a much better position to understand the, the legal and practical and political implications. Yeah, I think that that's a real strength of the book is that you you really start off and highlight the the theological aspect of it. I wonder if you could expand on that just a little bit more. I mean, you have a whole chapter talking about how these conflicts sometimes play out in Scripture. And sometimes we may not look at it that way because because that's not the terminology that they're using in Scripture. But can you say a little bit more about where you find resources for thinking about religious freedom? Um, in in scripture itself, yeah. So that's that's my really my favorite part of the book is this long chapter with over a dozen stories of religious freedom conflicts in scripture, uh, starting with the very first religious freedom conflict, which was the Hebrew midwives uh, in Egypt, and Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives that when a Hebrew baby was born, if it was a girl, they should let it live, and if it was a boy, they should kill it. So you have the government commanding a person of faith to engage in an act that would violate their conscience, and the midwives engaged in civil disobedience, and God blessed them for it. Uh, and there are dozens of, of stories like this throughout Scripture, uh, and there's so much we can learn from that. Uh, but also if you look at the overarching narrative of Scripture, and the church has made this clear in, in Dignitatis Humanae, uh, but that God has created every human being with this capacity for relationship with him, a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. Uh, and then God is also pursuing relationship with humanity, sending his Son uh, and yet, God never forces anyone into relationship with him. There's no, God never uses coercion. And so if God doesn't coerce us in relationship with him, how much less should the government? 
And when the government tries to do that, it's really elevating itself above God, uh, exceeding its God-given realm of authority, and committing an injustice. And so that's the sense in which religious freedom really is a basic issue of justice rooted in the nature of God and the nature of man. One of the things I really liked that you pointed out in that Hebrew midwife's story in the book is that, and I think that this is true for for conflicts today that we need to keep in mind, is that very rarely are these conflicts coming about because the government is saying we want to crush the religion itself. It's always some other some other thing it's pursuing. You point out it's national security in that particular case. Um, this comes up because sometimes people will we will sometimes get criticism kind of claiming Thomas More as a patron saint because they'll say, well, he didn't really die for religious freedom. It's like, well, nobody really dies for the abstract concept of religious freedom. It's always the conflict is always some other thing. Uh, and I, I just thought that was a good point that you made. Yeah, you see that in a lot of conflicts today. You know, it's not really the government out to get. Christians because they're Christians, here in America at least. And it's not that Christians or or people of other faith are just out there trying to wreak havoc on society. It's just that we have a government that regulates so many different areas of life, and then we have a wide diversity of religious practices in this country. It's, It's impossible for the government to anticipate every potential conflict. And so really the rub of religious freedom is when the government's pursuing some other interest, uh, religious people are running afoul of the government's efforts, and we have to find a way to accommodate religious practice. Can Can we bend the law in a way that respects people's deeply held beliefs and practices while still allows the government to achieve its interests? You know, one of the biggest religious liberty issues affecting Christians right now is this claim that it offers a license to discriminate. This is, in our committee, this comes up all the time. How do we deal with this? Um, you know, the argument is that, uh, that, it's, that it's akin to, like, racial discrimination when you're talking about, and it has to do with sexual morality, with LGBT issues. I think a lot of Christians, well-meaning, know that, that there's something wrong about that, and yet probably have no idea what they would say in response if they're accused of being a bigot or something like that. How do you think Christians can respond to this? Or, and why is that a bad analogy, the analogy with race? Yeah, so it's, it's a very common argument. And there's, a, there's an old Supreme Court case involving Bob Jones University. It was a religious university. And they had a policy against interracial marriage and interracial dating. And the IRS looked at that and stripped their tax-exempt status said this race discrimination in higher education is against public policy and you can't be tax-exempt anymore. Uh, Went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled against Bob Jones and in favor of the IRS and said, hey, we have a terrible legacy of race discrimination in this country, and so you can't uh, discriminate based on race and keep your tax-exempt status. And now you see a lot of folks on the left making that analogy uh, when it comes to same-sex marriage. And, you know, Beto O'Rourke, few weeks ago made that comment in the in the debate saying hey if you don't support same-sex marriage uh, I think the government should strip the tax exempt status of, of the church and of, of religious colleges and universities and so in the book I address why that analogy to race discrimination fails and there's several reasons I mean the main reason is our tragic 
unique history of race discrimination in this country. We had hundreds of years of slavery based on race. We fought a civil war over the issue of race. We had to have several constitutional amendments addressing race. And then we had government-backed segregation based on race. And this systematically denied uh, equal access to African-Americans to full participation in the political, economic, and social life of the country. And because of that devastating history of race discrimination, the government's been given special tools, powerful tools, to eradicate race discrimination, but tools it hasn't been given for any other form of discrimination, whether based on sex, religion, disability, age, or anything else, uh, including sexual orientation. And then you see this difference reflected throughout our laws. I mean, just one example, I take employment discrimination. Uh, all 50 states ban employment discrimination based on race, and they don't give religious exemptions from that ban. Uh, when it comes to sexual orientation discrimination, uh, only 22 states ban sexual orientation discrimination in employment, and all 22 states include religious exemptions, uh, recognizing that religious organizations have a legitimate interest in, its, in their own policies on human sexuality and sexual morality. Uh, and then you also see this in the U.S. Supreme Court itself. Uh, in 1967, in the Loving versus Virginia case, the Supreme Court struck down uh, state bans on interracial marriage. And when it did so, it went out of its way to condemn the beliefs underlying those interracial marriage bans as invidious relics of white supremacy and worthy of condemnation. Uh, by contrast, in 2014, when the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, it went out of its way to do the opposite. And it said the beliefs underlying traditional marriage laws are based on decent and honorable premises held by millions of people throughout history and, and actually worthy of protection. And so the Supreme Court itself has recognized that race is very different. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, the analogy to race really fails at multiple levels, historical, practical, and legal. And I, I don't think it's going to uh, play out in that direction in the future, uh, but it's not going to stop opponents of religious freedom from, from pushing that analogy, and we need to pre be prepared to respond to it. So, Luke, like as you were talking, I thought of a question, and then as you kept talking, you answered it. It just shows you're an excellent lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also very long-winded, so if I keep talking long enough, I can answer everything, hopefully. <laughs> okay. Let's go for three hours here, right? <laughs> well, so, I mean, I mean, to stick with the LGBT, or, or to kind of move, actually to move away from it a little bit, I mean, you know, most Christians, this is what they're the most familiar with are the conflicts over LGBT-related issues. But you spend a, a fair bit of time in the book talking about how the issue of land use, and that's kind of another realm that, like, our office often hasn't really gotten too involved in any of those sorts of cases directly, although and we, we monitor them, but we haven't made lots of public statements about those types of issues. But this really in, gets, gets at some of the major issues that Muslims face, so I wonder if you could, you know, I think some of our listeners might not be familiar with these types of issues. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about these land use issues. Um, this is a lot of questions in one. <laughs> what some of the main issues, though, that Muslims are facing, and then you could you also say though why it's so important that Christians be concerned about these. Also, it doesn't seem to affect us, 
but we should be concerned about these issues also. Yeah. I mean, Muslims face a lot of the same religious freedom issues as Christians and Jews and people of other faiths. You know, you brought up land use. Uh, Don't shut off the podcast if you're listening, because land use really is a fascinating area of the law. Uh, And it, it comes up because churches, houses of worship, are kind of the unwanted stepchild of the land use process. Like, if you're a local zoning board, you don't really like churches because they bring a lot of traffic and noise to residential areas and people living in their homes don't like them. Uh, They don't bring enough traffic to a commercial area. uh, And then they're also tax exempt. So you're removing property from the tax rolls. So a lot of local zoning authorities make it kind of difficult for churches, houses of worship to, to locate in their town. So this comes up all the time for people of all different faiths, uh, but it also comes up especially frequently for Muslims. And the reason for that is uh, the land use context is it's highly discretionary. You can always talk about traffic or noise or the character of the community, and those things can also become an excuse for kind of veiled hostility to religious groups that you don't like. And so Muslims face especially difficult problems in the land use context. And I've, I've had an opportunity to represent uh, uh, Islamic Center in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, that faced tremendous hostility yeah. from the local government. Uh, Can but, you talk about that case a little bit? You- yeah. I mean, th- this was a uh, Islamic Center of Murfreesboro had been in the, in the area for a couple decades. They were growing rapidly, outgrew their facility. They needed a new place to worship. So like many churches, they bought a piece of property on the outskirts of town and started building a a larger facility. Uh, But then uh, local residents started protesting. Uh, Often residents who uh, called themselves Christians were protesting the the building of this new mosque. There was uh, arson attack on the construction equipment on the property, uh, vandalism. There was even a bomb threat called in. Uh, September 4th, they got an expletive-ridden phone message saying there was going to be a bomb planted in their sanctuary on September 11th. So they canceled services, and you know people were very scared. Uh, the local residents also filed a lawsuit against the county saying they couldn't approve this mosque. Uh, and so it was just this huge mess. Uh, but we came in and, and filed a lawsuit on the eve of Ramadan, and you know, long story short, got the court to rule, hey, you can't treat this mosque worse than every other house of worship in the land use context. And they were able to get into their building by Ramadan, which was a which was a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but when I when I talk about this sort of issue with with Christians in particular, there are some who are very hesitant. Like, why would you defend religious freedom? For Muslims, like why we don't want more mosques in our country, and so I address that in in my book, Free to Believe, and offer three different arguments why I think we as Christians, in particular, should spe- take special care for religious freedom for people of all faiths. Uh, the first argument I offer, I call it the argument from self-interest, and say, you know, even if we only care about ourselves, even if we only care about religious freedom for Christians, it's just smart to care about religious freedom for people of other faiths because the precedents that are set in these cases for Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, and others, in a very real sense, directly affect Christians as well. I see this in my own litigation all the time, like the Hobby Lobby case. That was the Christian business owners who didn't want to provide abortion-inducing drugs in their health insurance plan. Uh, When we won that case in the Court of Appeals, 
the main precedent that the court relied on to protect Hobby Lobby was a case involving a Muslim prisoner who wanted to keep a halal diet in prison. And the court said, hey, just like this prison was forcing the Muslim prisoner to choose between his faith and having a nutritious diet, uh, the government now is forcing the owners of Hobby Lobby to choose between following their faith on the issue of abortion and paying multi-million dollar fines to the IRS. So a victory in court for a Muslim prisoner led directly to a victory for the Christian owners of Hobby Lobby. And, and the opposite is also true. I mean, bad decisions. Uh, the worst decision in this area of the law is Employment Division versus Smith, where the Supreme Court ruled that the government could criminalize the central sacrament of the Native American faith. That, that bad ruling for Native Americans has affected countless Christians I mean, and people of other faiths in a negative way. So our, our religious freedom is really bound up with the religious freedom of our neighbors, and protecting their religious freedom just makes common sense. So that's the argument from self-interest. Second argument I offer is what I call the argument from evangelism. So as Christians, I, you know, I'm from an evangelical background, and we're very concerned about evangelism and, and converting people, even if that's your only goal. Uh, protecting religious freedom for Muslims actually uh, creates more opportunities for Muslims and people of other faith to come to Christ. Uh, because we know that nobody comes to a saving faith, to a true conversion, through government coercion. Uh, you know, using government power to shut down a mosque or not allow a Muslim woman to wear a headscarf doesn't bring anybody closer to faith in Christ. Uh, by contrast, if we actually protect their freedom, uh, protect their conscience, uh, not only do we have opportunities to share our faith with them, and I've, I've made close friendships with Muslim clients and been able to tell them why I, I disagree as a matter of faith, uh, but we also leave them free to come to a saving faith in Christ. And so protecting religious freedom for Muslims leaves room for more Muslims to come to faith in Christ. Uh, and then the third argument I offer, I, I call the argument from justice. And that ties back to the argument we talked about earlier that religious freedom really is a basic issue of justice rooted in who we are as human beings, that we're all created with a thirst for transcendent truth uh, and we're all created with a conscience but we can't embrace transcendent truth authentically unless we embrace it freely. And so when the government coerces people in matters of transcendent truth, it's violating who we are as human beings and violating a fundamental human right. And so regardless of our self-interest or our evangelistic motives, we should also defend religious freedom for Muslims because it's the right thing to do and it is just and, and fair. Mm -hmm. And I often think, too, that that when it comes to this issue of being able to build your house of worship, I mean, Catholics should be able to relate. Uh, I belonged to a parish when my wife and I first moved here that is just off of 16th Street, which for people who don't know, I mean, that's like right in the middle of D.C. And now along 16th Street, there are lots of the old mainline Protestant churches but this one Catholic church is on this weird kind of obviously like a cut-through sort of street so that it's set off of 16th Street and separated by a tiny little park. Well, the reason was because it used to be that in D.C. they, wouldn't, they didn't want any Catholic churches or synagogues to be on 
16th Street. That was supposed to be, it, it, they, it was deliberately, we were zoned out in a way. And so then we were kind of wily and create, did this little workaround. <laughs> it was kind of funny, but, you know, it's one of these things where if you've been a religious minority, um, you should be able to empathize with the situation of other of religious minorities. And so I think as Catholics, it's just one more one more reason in addition to what you've pointed out that we should we should especially be concerned about this. Yeah, that you know that reminds me also of a number of current cases involving Blaine amendments and a lot of Americans just forget this history behind Blaine amendments but in the mid to late 1800s you know we were a Protestant dominated country the the public schools were Protestant dominated and you had an influx of immigrants mainly Catholics and they, they came to this country and said, hey, we don't want our children attending Protestant schools and, and praying Protestant prayers and reading the Protestant version of the Bible. We want our children having a Catholic education. And this led to a huge backlash, a whole political party, the Know Nothing political party, based on anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant premises, and enacted all these laws in, in states across the country called Blaine Amendments, specifically designed to target Catholics and cut off any sort of government funding for Catholic institutions. And many of those laws are still on the books today, and they're affecting not just Catholic institutions anymore, but all religious institutions. And that's just one more example how, you know, if we, if we understand our history, we can really see that the religious freedom of any one group in this country is highly relevant to the religious freedom of all of us. And we're either going to all hang together or we're going to hang separately. It's the, I mean, it sounds like what you're talking about is, is, is the common good, right? It's, it's, it's not our best, best interests for everyone. And also, as you said, like a matter of justice. It's what people are, are due. It's our, it's our right. Yeah, especially with the evangel- evangelization point, you're never going to, going to make headway if that's your main concern is evangelization, if marginalizing a group is only makes them more insular, you're really working against that interest by by deliberately setting out to marginalize a group. So I'm, I'm, it's a really great point that you make. You know, and you talk about this theological grounding for religious freedom. This is something I've been thinking about more often lately. You know, from the Catholic side, as you point out with Dignitas Humanae, that we really focus on human dignity and all that that entails. And I think in any event, religious liberty it needs this philosophically and theologically grounded understanding of the human person. It seems to be really important. So in that sense, one thing I've wondered about is whether a strongly secularist culture can very well support true religious liberty. Um, so I wonder, I mean, you know, you're the, the legal expert. Do you think that some of these recent and impending threats to religious liberty, which are more about free exercise, are in any way related to some of the ongoing attempts to kind of scrub religion out from the public square. Do you, do you see a connection there? Yeah, I do. And I, I have a chapter in Free to Believe kind of trying to lay out why we're seeing so many religious freedom conflicts today. Uh, and I've, I think there are a number of factors contributing to that. So one factor is the fact that long-standing Christian beliefs about things like absolute truth and human life and human sexuality, while they weren't universally accepted in the past, they weren't controversial. Uh, but nowadays, those beliefs in absolute truth that life begins at c- conception and that marriage is for a man and a woman, 
Those beliefs are not only controversial today, they're viewed in many quarters as, as a threat to a good culture. Uh, so that's a, that's a huge contributor to the religious freedom conflicts we're seeing today. Uh, but other, a couple other factors. One is uh, increased religious diversity. We just have a broader variety of faiths today, and uh, when you have so many different faith practices, it just becomes a bit more difficult as a logistical matter to accommodate everyone. But then a final factor is that fewer and fewer Americans are identifying themselves as religious or uh, claiming that religion plays an important role in their own life. And that's a big problem for religious freedom, because if you're not a religious person, uh, you're not naturally inclined to stand up for religious freedom. So I think all of those are contributing. Uh, but at the same time, I think there are, even if you're a diehard secularist, there are very powerful arguments we, we can make to say why religious freedom is important for everyone, uh, even if you're a secularist. And I, I offer three of those in, in one of the chapters. You know, as, as Christians, we need to be equipped to make these secular arguments, even if our own view of religious freedom is first and foremost theological and biblical. And those arguments, number one, is how religious freedom benefits society. Uh, our founding fathers said you, know, you couldn't have self-government without a moral and religious people. That relig Religion is fundamental to self-government, and religious freedom is what allows religion to flourish. Uh, and religious freedom also, by allowing religious to religion to flourish, uh, generates all kinds of good works. You know, think of hospitals, schools, social services, soup kitchens, homeless shelters. Uh, these are essential services for, for our entire country. Uh, it also creates space for diversity and pluralism and allowing people of deeply divided beliefs to live together in peace. So it, it contributes in a real way to social harmony. Uh, another reason why everyone should care about religious freedom is that in a, in a real sense, it's a foundation for all of our other rights. Uh, the premise of religious freedom is that there is something inside each human being, in our very nature as human beings, that the government can't touch and can't violate, uh, that, that freedom of conscience. Uh, and that premise really uh, protects all of our other rights, whether that's freedom from unreasonable search and seizure or cruel and unusual punishment uh, or imprisonment without a trial. You know, those rights all follow from the idea that there's something within each of us that the government can't touch and can't take away. Uh, and then lastly is, again, we have to be prepared to make that argument for religious freedom as a basic human right rooted in the dignity of every human being. And whether or not you're religious yourself, uh, that that's something that is worthy of protecting in and of itself as a matter of justice. You know, one of my favorite chapters in this book is um, the one that's on letting go of winning. And the reason I liked it so much is that I think it rightly highlights that our priority is always to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, you're really asking these, this question of when you get into religious liberty conflicts, it's important to ask, why are we getting involved in them in the first place? Which I think we can lose sight of, of that very easily. Absolutely. Um, certainly, we do want to sometimes win battles, so to speak, because we think that we're doing good by witnessing to the common good or promoting the common good. Um, but Christ has to be the center of everything we do, and, we, and it's important to always get back at, like, why, why do we have these policies about who can work here? Um, or why are we enforcing them the way we're enforcing them? 
Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more, just comment on the chapter. But one of the, in the but the other question I'm interested in is why you decided to include the chapter at all. Like, did you have a, in your experience doing this? Have you seen that sometimes we can forget these? You know, what's really foundational for our work? Yeah. So the the third part of the book is what can we do about these religious freedom conflicts? And when I talk with Christians and and people of other faiths. You know, what, what should we do about religious freedom? Their, their first reaction, and my first reaction for a long time, is how do we win? You know, our main concern is how do we win these cases? How do we prevail in these conflicts? And I think it's often really driven by uh, self-preservation and, and really comfort. I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable to lose your religious freedom. It's, it can be painful to suffer for your faith, and we naturally don't want to suffer. As, as human beings. Uh, but I think if we, uh, if we start there, if we start from how do we win, uh, we're really, really losing sight of the big picture. And so what, how I start that third part of the book is trying to remind the church that much of Scripture is written to Christians who were losing, hmm. who were suffering, <laughs> and who were yeah, experiencing persecution. And in America, we haven't faced that. You know, as Christians, we've had it good here in America for a very long time. And we haven't really had to focus on those passages of Scripture that were written to Christians who were suffering and facing persecution. So I think that's really where we need to start, is what does Scripture say to us as Christians? What type of, not, not how do we win, but what type of people are we called to be in the midst of religious freedom conflicts? And there's so much in Scripture to draw out there, uh, you know, just touching on it briefly. One is we're called to expect suffering. And Paul wrote, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we, we're, we should not be surprised when, when uh, persecution or suffering comes. Uh, second, we're called to rejoice in the midst of persecution. Jesus said rejoice and leap for joy uh, when you suffer for his namesake uh, because we have a, a great reward in heaven. I, mean, I think often when we face religious freedom conflicts today, we get angry and we lash out at our opponents uh, rather than approaching it from a posture of joy. Um, we're also called to uh, continue doing good, even when it's costly. Uh, we're called to strive for peace with everyone, you know, not to stoke conflict unnecessarily, but try to look for win-win solutions that allow everyone to live together in peace. Uh, big one is we're called to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, uh, bless those who persecute us. So often we we view our opponents with hostility and, and trying to defeat them rather than trying to love them even in the midst of these conflicts. Uh, and then we're called to uh, remember our fellow Christians who are suffering, pray for them, and, and uh, remember them as if we're suffering with them. Uh, and we often just forget about uh, Christians who are going through these conflicts. So these are all, all callings that are not just about you know, winning cases, winning conflicts, but really pursuing Christ-likeness in the midst of our of our current culture. I think that's where we need to start first. Uh, and then absolutely we need to take prudent action and, and think about how to preserve religious freedom for the common good, but start with who are we supposed to be in the midst of these conflicts? Yeah, I mean, I really, I enjoyed some of the suggestions you had in there, not really suggestions, but just offering up as possibilities that when a religious freedom conflict presents itself, um, certainly, you're, you've litigated cases, so you're not saying don't go to court. But sometimes it actually might be it might be worth considering 
finding some other way to bear witness to to Jesus Christ, even in the, in the midst of the conflict. Like in the case of a wedding vendor, they might still choose to to even you say like give the cake away for free and and say like this is what I believe, but I want you to know I love you as my neighbor or something along those lines. You can imagine all sorts of possibilities can open themselves up when you kind of step back and try to approach these questions, you know, as a disciple and thinking first, first and foremost, how am I bearing witness to the gospel? So I I really, I I hope that people read the book, even if only for that chapter in some ways, because I think it's very, it's very helpful. I think it can open our imaginations up a little bit. Yeah, thank you. I mean, those those really are Maybe it's because I'm a lawyer and I'm I've been in court on these issues for over a decade and and there's just I think if anybody tends to think about religious freedom through a purely legal lens it would be me and and other lawyers uh, but part of why I wrote this book is that Scripture has so much to say to these issues and it really is a, a theological issue before it's a legal issue and I just I love being able to to dive into scripture and look what it has to say because it, it really does call us to a truly countercultural posture in the midst of these conflicts and it may call us to some really surprising and radical acts of love and generosity that kind of are completely unexpected but can really bear witness to the gospel and to the goodness of Jesus Christ. Well, and Luke, I think you brought up a good point. Like a lot of people think like, oh, well, these Supreme Court cases and how does that apply to me practically on a very real level day to day? Like, oh, this I'm never going to I'm never going to experience restrictions on my religious freedom. Right. But but these cases were people in their communities being discriminated or, you know, having their religious liberties restricted. And so. And just living out your religion um, day to day, I think, can set the groundwork and the culture in which religious liberty can be respected even more. I mean, I just think of, you know, examples at Bible study last night. We were talking about how, you know, um, the decision not to let um, people who weren't married sleep in the same bedroom when you host them in your home, like that's, you know, that that has divided families. That causes rifts. And that's you know, maybe not on a legal level, but to some degree, like that's kind of that culture in which like, oh, I'm rejecting you because of you're practicing your religious beliefs in your own home and you're my sister and I love you, but yet still I'm rejecting you. So do you see, I mean, are there examples concretely where like for our listeners, like what would be an example of something they might not have think of as a religious liberty issue that they might encounter like day to day? Yeah, I I think these types of conflicts are going to be increasingly in the news and talked about. I mean, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. It's it's going to come up around the the dinner table, and the way that we enter into these conversations, whether it's with our unbelieving neighbor or our fellow Catholic uncle, uh, the way we enter into these conversations has a very real reflection on on the gospel. And are we entering into these conversations? From a, from a loving posture and from a posture that's focused on justice and the common good? Or are we entering into these uh, conversations from a, a culture warrior perspective where we're trying to fight for our own rights and win and, and dominate? And that makes a huge difference, I think, in, in everyday life. I think the other, the other area it comes up in, you know, often religious freedom conflicts, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, we're, we're representing Catholic social services right now in the city of Philadelphia. And for over a hundred years, Catholic Social Services has been recruiting families 
to provide loving homes for children in need of foster care. And they're doing a great job of this ministry. Uh, The city of Philadelphia recently decided to shut them down, said no more children can be placed through Catholic Social Services uh, because Catholic Social Services uh, places children only in the homes of married couples. They won't place children with same-sex couples. They won't place them with uh, divorced or unmarried couples. And the city took that move even though no same-sex couple in 100 years has ever come to Catholic Social Services and asked them Uh, for foster care placement, Uh, and despite the fact there are 29 other agencies, private foster care agencies in the city that serve same-sex couples. Uh, So this is not at all about anybody stopping same-sex couples from fostering. It's just the city saying, we think your Catholic beliefs about marriage are bigoted, and we don't want to work with you anymore, and we're going to shut you down. And now, you can approach that conflict in one of two ways. Uh, You can say, this is a violation of our religious freedom. You can pound the table and say, this is wrong. You shouldn't take away our religious freedom. Uh, In a sense, that's correct. I mean, this is unjust. Uh, But you can also approach it in a slightly different way and say, hey, we are here seeking to love children. We are doing the best job in the city recruiting loving families and supporting families to provide homes for these children. And when you're doing this, yes, you're violating our religious freedom, but much more than that, you've said yourself, City of Philadelphia, there's a foster care crisis and you need more homes. And when you shut down one of the best agencies in the city for no reason, you're harming children who need homes. And there are homes today sitting empty because the city won't place children uh, through Catholic social services. So there's another case to be made for religious freedoms, not just insisting on our rights, uh, but showing how religious people are benefiting society. And, And we need to be doing that work that Jesus calls us to do, providing the most loving homes for the most needy children, providing the best education in our Catholic schools for the neediest children. Uh, providing the best medical care in our Catholic hospitals for the poorest and sickest patients, and to be able to say to the rest of the country, look, we care about our religious freedom, yes, but really we just want to serve people. We want to love people, and please allow us to continue doing this work that is so necessary for so many people. And that's a very different way of making the case for religious freedom. So for the last question, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about preaching. I think I heard you at a talk recently how some of these kinds of questions came up when you had the opportunity to give a a sermon um, at your church. And I wonder, have you heard any particularly good sermons that drew from some of these biblical stories that you're talking about? Or if you you can't think of one off the top of your head, uh, another way to put it is kind of like, what do you recommend for preachers? We know that our priests do not like to talk about controversial things for the most part, and they don't want to talk about things that are seen as too political. But as you point out, these, this is a pre-political thing. And I just wonder if you might have, a, as a final word, a word for people who are entrusted with preaching the gospel, how they might approach these kinds of questions. Yeah, I've been, I've been listening to sermons and homilies for over 30 years now, and yet I can't think of any uh, sermon I've heard specifically on religious freedom. Uh, but 
There is so much in Scripture that touches on it. And, and in fact, I was talking with a, with a Catholic person yesterday uh, who was in a, a position of, of authority and was facing a, a very difficult challenge uh, related to his faith. And he went to, to daily Mass that morning, and the Gospel reading was where Jesus said, when they bring you before governors and kings, for my name's sake, uh, don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give you what you need. Uh, and he had a bunch of notes prepared for this big conflict he was heading to. And he walked out of Mass that day. It took him a couple blocks, but he threw his notes in the garbage, uh, just <laughs> oh, wow. trying to be obedient to that gospel reading that he heard. So, you know, it's in there. And, you know, I try to, I try to touch on these stories in my book, and, and they're going to come up in the lectionary and you're going to have opportunities to talk about uh, religious freedom conflicts as it comes up in, in Scripture. And I would just say, don't, don't shy away from it. Uh, you know, I'm not saying my book is the only resource out there, but it does give, uh, give a lot of material for understanding religious freedom conflicts in Scripture. And if it is an issue of justice, if it is a theological issue, uh, we can't shy away from it. And when it comes up, whether that's in the lectionary or in the in current events, we can't be scared to talk about it. And we, but we do need a new way of talking about it—not just uh, a culture war issue for protecting ourselves, uh, but a basic issue of justice that extends to to people of all faiths and really is a matter of the common good. So don't shy away from it. And and we can we can enter into these conflicts from a posture of joy and and confidence in the gospel rather than a position of fear. Well, Luke. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk with us. Um, I, I did. I enjoyed reading the book. I definitely recommend it. I think it really fills a void. You know, like I, I think I mentioned before, that I think a lot of people kind of know that these things are out there. They may read a column or or an op-ed or whatever, and either freak out or think, "Who cares?" But this really does, I think, help to address a lot of areas where where believers just may not really feel, feel equipped at all to think very carefully about these issues. So thank you so much, both for your service to religious freedom and also for coming to talk to us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, if, if listeners want to get it, it's, it's called Free to Believe. You can get it anywhere books are sold, and I have a bunch of links on my website at lukegoodrich.com. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much for having me, and I, I really did want it to be a resource you know if you're not a lawyer you know it's written for people who are not lawyers who have not who are not familiar with this issue and just try to break it down in, in as clear a manner as possible so i really hope it's helpful and thank you guys so much for having me today yeah, thank, thank you, you. Yeah. yeah and i'm aaron weldon and i'm mary mccleskey and thank you for joining us for this episode of the first freedom podcast mm-hmm.